right? I think a lot of people that get into single family, they start building a, a portfolio and they get to a certain point where they're just like, man, this is just a lot of work for a couple hundred dollars net that you get per door. And there's got to be a better way. And that's usually more doors under one roof. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey, where we explore every facet of multifamily investing and development with top investors, brokers, and service providers who share their strategies, successes, and secrets to help you on your apartment investing journey. Hey guys, David Robinson here. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey. As usual, we've got another great episode for you today. I'm really excited to have Seth Bradley with me today. Seth, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming on. David, thanks for having me on, brother. My pleasure. So Seth is a real estate entrepreneur and an expert at creating passive income while working as a highly paid, busy professional. He's closed billions of dollars in real estate transactions as a real estate attorney, investor, and broker. He's a managing partner of Law Capital Partners, a private equity firm focused on value-add real estate acquisitions and development. He's a former big law attorney, most recently practicing in the re in real estate and securities department of a top three globally ranked law firm. He's also the host of the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, great podcast. I've listened to a bunch of episodes myself, uh, where he educates attorneys and other professionals on how to stop trading their time for money so that they can practice when they want to, not because they have to. So, uh, Seth, just a very brief bio there. Our podcast is all about the journey. We'd love to hear about uh, your backstory and uh, and then how you progressed into the space and what your business looks like today. So if you can, let's back up and tell us where it all started for you. Yeah, for sure, man. I'll take it. I'll take it way back. I, I was born sure. in Korea and I was adopted adopted by a, a couple of folks in in Crossroads, West Virginia. So grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere in the country. People wouldn't think that when they see me. I, I don't think I come off that way, but <laughs> but yeah, cool. uh, grew up in West Virginia, blue collar background. Uh, mom is a retired school teacher. My dad is a retired coal miner. So came from kind of that hard work, put your head down, trade your time for money type of uh, mentality, which is uh, it's a double-edged sword, right? You, know, you learn that work ethic, which is great. But on the other hand, you don't really have that that uh, you know that abundance mentality. Everything's always always scarce. You're always trading, you know, time for money. And I was never really around kind of entrepreneurship or owning real estate or anything like that. So, so growing up, it was all just about, you know, get a great education, get the best job you can possibly get. And for me growing up, that was, I identified being a doctor as the, you know, mm -hmm. the best W2 job you could get. So, you know, went down that pathway, went to med school for about a year and into my second year before I realized that I, I hated it. I mean, I knew that mm -hmm. that's just not what I wanted to do. So I dropped out in my second year. Took some time there, didn't know what I was going to do. So I went ahead and started getting my MBA at the time, just because I knew that would apply to just about anything. And then I realized, I started thinking, you know, what, what's the next best job I could get? And for me, that was to become an attorney. <laughs> so I went to law school after that, um, did pretty well there, went to, you know, did the whole, you know, did, did really well in school, ranked high in, in my class and got a big law job out of out of uh, law school, um, did well there. And, and then, you know, I, I still just had that that itch, right? I, I didn't know what it was, but there was just something. And, and that itch was just the entrepreneurship, kind of, you know, be your own boss, stop trading your time for money type of mentality that I just didn't grow up with. I wasn't exposed mm -hmm. to it. But, you know, the more I got into, you know, when I was got getting my MBA and even in law school and, and also working at a firm, seeing some of the clients that are coming in and owning these, you know, these massive real estate properties, 
you know, I started surrounding myself with, with more people that had that mentality and it just kind of started getting the wheels turning a little bit. So that's when I started looking at, you know, what, what is there out there? And, and for me, it was real estate. So, you know, I started in single family, um, house hacked into a duplex was my first property um, back in 2013 and, and started investing in single families, fix and flips, all that kind of stuff. And, and just kind of worked my way up. And eventually, you know, that's where I am today into large commercial properties. Love it. So I've got a, a few friends that uh, are attorneys and, uh, you know, I, I have a chance to chat with them, you know, quite often. And it's a challenge, right? Because you get into that legal world and you're making great W-2 income and it's a, it's a double-edged sword where you're, you know, you're making great income, but it's hard to exit that space. Uh, you figured out a way to sort of navigate it along the path. And uh, I'm curious today, what your business looks like. Uh, do you spend, I guess if you can, just describe for us, I mean, you, you got your hands in a handful of things, but describe to us what, you know, all your businesses look like and in, in your involvement from a professional standpoint. Sure. And maybe I'll take you, you know, the rest of the journey there is kind of yeah, please. Know, doing, doing the single family stuff, the fix and flips, doing all that. And, and honestly, when you're working in big law and you're billing 2,000, 3,000 hours a year, you don't have time to do fix and flips. You just don't. And But at the time, that's that's all I knew. I only knew single family rentals, single family um, investments. I didn't know about, you know, passive investing in commercial real estate or even active investing. I, di- I didn't I didn't have that mindset yet that you could actually do that. And I had a couple of epiphanies while I was working and, and meeting those clients and just seeing that they're regular guys like you and me and realizing, well, hey, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a hundred million dollars to buy an apartment complex. You can use other people's money. And then I started kind of getting into that space, started networking with the right people. You know how that process goes. Um, and I was advised to invest passively first. That would be the before you jumped into it actively. Even being an attorney that's done those types of deals before, said, "Hey, maybe you should do it passively first. So, so I did. So I started investing passively in some multifamily deals. Um, got comfortable with that, and that's when I started saying, "Okay, now I think I'm ready. I can cross over to the active side." Started, um, you know, just vetting deals and raising capital, and, and you know, using my legal expertise to to get my foot in the door. And that's kind of how my my business developed now with Law Capital Partners. It's a private equity firm. We do commercial real estate, mostly multifamily um, into RV parks now as well. But again, and I partner with, you know, I'm primarily um, doing the legal work, kind of serving as an in-house counsel on the team. So, you know, having somebody on your side um, that's part of the ownership group that's, that's an attorney is, is never a bad thing, right? So either I'll do some of the real estate and the securities work myself, or I'll just oversee the work with you know the real estate attorney, the securities attorney that's on the deal, and just kind of put a second set of eyes on it. And then you know when there's little things that come in, like the vendor agreements, the you know the contractor disputes, things like that, you'd normally have to outsource to a third party attorney. I'm already there to to handle those things, and you don't have to you know, have somebody bill some hours for that. Yeah, love it. So how do you manage? So are are you still part of a, another firm? You mentioned being a part of a big three firm. Are you still working sort of in that corporate legal space as well? Right now, yes, um, okay. but very, very little time. I mean, I'm billing like less than five hours a week at this point. Oh, it's gotcha. Really, okay. It's really like nothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious how you manage from a time perspective, you know, your investment business, uh, you know, your your legal business, and then, you know, a- anything else that you're involved in. I know that you have some other businesses that you own and and, and I'm, I assume manage at a high level, but um, yeah, I was just curious from a time management perspective, how you've been able to navigate that. 
Oh, for sure. And that's what I was saying. You know, you have no business working in big law and then trying to flip houses. I mean, even the same thing goes for just about anything when you're working in big law. I mean, we used to have this thing called the 20 minute rule when a client or some or a, a partner, anybody with any sort of importance emails you, you have 20 minutes to respond in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means basically you're tied to your desk, you're tied to your phone. You can't, you know, have any, and even during the lunch or whatever, you have to respond. So it's a very demanding job. Um, you can't do all the stuff while doing that, at least mm-hmm. not until you get to like, you know, high up or maybe you're just a rainmaker and you just have to maintain uh, relationships and things like that. So, yes, I, I don't have a full time practice, not even close to it at this point. It's all really focused on on the real estate business. Got it. Got it. Love it. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your entry into the space. You You started by investing passively. And then you move to the active side. Let's talk a little bit about that transition to the active side of the business. How'd you get involved in your first opportunity and what did that look like? Sure. I mean, just networking, right? And then it was actually a group that I had invested passively with before. And I, you know, they knew that even before I said yes to investing passively, I said, hey, are there going to be some opportunities for me to kind of get a peek behind the curtain? Because ultimately I do want to be on the active side. And that was kind of one of the prerequisites for me to invest passively was somebody saying, Yeah, you know, we'll show you a few things like, you know, come to the meeting, like things like that. So that was kind of a prerequisite. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. And like a lot of people, you know, you just get piecemeal things, you know, let's, you know, they've already done their underwriting on the property, but, you know, they'll send you the spreadsheet and be like, hey, take a look, see what you think. And you do your own little underwriting, things like that, do your own due diligence. Obviously, I put my my legal expertise eyes on it as well and kind of give them some feedback on, you know, the documents and, and what, what the attorneys on the deal have produced and then raising capital and, and you know, other things you can bring to the deal. Got it. And so you've uh, you've got a great podcast yourself, the Passive Income Attorney. So talk to us a little bit about as you have an opportunity to to educate and and uh, and work with high income earning, busy professionals, particularly in in the law world. What are the biggest challenges that attorneys face in getting involved in real estate deals uh, as you have an opportunity to work with them? Yeah. I mean, you know, the biggest challenge I think is time, right? They don't have any time. You don't have time to do this stuff. You don't have time to learn a completely new business. Even if you're somebody like myself that that was in a a real estate department or a real estate attorney or securities attorney, and you're around this stuff all day, you still don't have time to learn the actual business of it. You're going to have to carve out some time if you want to be on the active side to, to learn it. But to me, if you're already making, you know, 200, 300, $400,000, $500,000 a year or more. If you're a partner, you're making a million dollars, whatever you're making, you're obviously really good at what you do and you're making awesome active income. There's no point in you trying to do this other thing on the side. I mean, take some of that, figure out how to save some of that. Don't get tied down by the golden handcuffs and use some of that active income and turn it into passive income, invest in these passive deals. And you can use your legal expertise to, to, to vet the deals and kind of do your due diligence and all that stuff and be an intelligent investor. But you know the challenge is time. You don't have mm-hmm. that time and, and maybe you don't have the desire either to, to take on another business. Because at the end of the day, when you're billing all those hours um, and you're spending all that time at the office, then, you gotta, then you're coming home and you've got family things to deal with. There's just not a lot of time left for you in, in your day. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you being an attorney and you know, you you're looking at operating agreements and and PPMs all day long, you uh, obviously have some insight into some things that, 
you know, investors should know, passive investors should know about their operating agreements. Let's dive into that real quick. Talk to us about uh, maybe a few things that passive investors should be looking for in their operating agreements that maybe sometimes get glossed over or would have a significant impact on the the outcome that they're seeking. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that past investors, at least when they first get started, they don't even realize that, you know, they look at the marketing materials, they look at the offering memorandum, um, you know, all the stuff that's kind of jazzed up and looks pretty. And that's kind of what they pay attention to. And then even with the offering memorandum, you just flip straight to the projected returns and look at that and then compare that to the next deal, which is, you know, that's a whole different subject matter comparing a deal to a deal with projected returns. Sure. But what a lot of people don't realize, at least um, the people that invest you know, maybe in their first or second deal or, you know, don't do quite as much due diligence as it should is that the operating agreement is the most important document. I mean, it's more important than the PPM, even though it's an exhibit to the PPM sometimes. The operating agreement is the actual legal document that is going to lay out your rights as a member of that company or as a limited partner or as an investor. And those are the words that you need to dig into and really figure out what they mean. Um, and, and a few things that you can look into that are really important are, you know, the the two terrible words you never want to say a capital call right you want to look and see mm-hmm. what happens if there's a capital call do do your uh, membership interests get uh, get diluted and they probably do but you know one thing you really need to look at find out where that is in the operating agreement understand it figure out when those the manager of that agreement or manager of that company can um, do a capital call you know what does it take mm-hmm. does it take a super majority because the, can the manager just do it on you know with their sole and absolute discretion figure out like when that capital call would be triggered. I mean, that's one because capital calls are, are, you know, one of the worst case scenarios that you don't want to encounter, but they do happen from time to time. So you should know going into the deal when they can happen and how they can happen. Um, Another thing is, you know, distributions. Again, you kind of see in in the marketing materials, you know, you're going to get, you know, these projected returns and, you know, you're going to get quarterly distributions and all these different things, but you really need to find that section in the operating agreement read it and make sure that that matches what the sponsor, the operator is telling you, because sometimes, you know, they're just willy nilly and they're just on a, you know, they're on a webinar and they're just talking and talking and talking and they just kind of gloss over things, which is not advisable, but make sure you dig in the operating agreement, make sure you know when you're going to get your distributions, make sure you know what you're going to get. And, you know, and, and related to that is kind of the waterfall and where you, how those things are, you know, how they how they go down the waterfall and when you're going to get paid because it's really important to understand that. And some of those, some of the language in the operating agreement gets really complicated with respect to the waterfall. So, mm. you know, if, you know, if you have a, a friend that might be a real estate attorney or, um, you know, a securities attorney, maybe have them take a, take a quick look um, over that to make sure you understand it, understand when you're going to get paid and who gets paid first. Um, and the other thing relatedly is fees. Make sure that the fees that they lay out in the, Offering memorandum it, uh, match what it's what they say in the in the operating agreement. Make sure you know what fees are being collected for what and when they're triggered, um, as well as you know liquidity. I, I think that's something that hopefully everybody realizes that these investments aren't liquid. You know, you, mm-hmm. you're in it for the long haul. You're in it for that minimum of two to three years if you're if you want out quick, if you can sell it quick. But you might be in it for ten years. Who knows? And, and typically, the operators have. The discretion to do that to hold the property as long as they see fit. So just make sure that you understand that you know the, this investment is not liquid. But find that in the operating agreement. Find where it says that, and make sure you know what your rights are with respect to that. So if you know if you 
you, an emergency comes up and you want to sell your shares for some reason, know your rights, know if there's a right of ref- first refusal, perhaps to the management, the sponsors, um, maybe a right of first refusal to the other members. Um, just understand like if, if you have to get out, how can you possibly get out? So you can understand that because emergencies do come up. And the last thing I would point out is voting rights. Just know what you have the right to vote for. And typically the one you really want to look out for is, you know, how can you get rid of that manager, uh, the manager of the LLC? Um, if they're doing a terrible job, if they've committed fraud, if there's uh, misrepresentations, they didn't, if they've done something terrible, they should be able to get replaced um, under certain circumstances. So just make sure that those are laid out uh, correctly and, and just know your rights again with respect to the operating agreement. Because again, that those are the, the words that if something goes wrong, you're going to have to go back and, and see what your rights are. Yeah, that's a great checklist of sort of some high level key components of that operating agreement that are important. So if you're listening, just to review, uh, capital calls, how are those handled? Uh, when can they happen? How are they structured? Uh, distributions, including the waterfall, uh, you know, at a very high level, those are going to be identified in the investment summary, but it really to dig into exactly how those, and they can get complicated. So digging into exactly how those are structured, the fees that the sponsorship group or the, uh, the general partners are taking on the deal, liquidity, and just understanding that these aren't, you know, uh, quick turn deals, you know, you can't just easily get your money back out and what would it take to get your money back out? And then lastly, the vote, voting rights. So love that summary. That's excellent. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about, you know, you started investing in single family, right? And you made a big jump into commercial real estate. Uh, you, you alluded to the fact that, hey, you know, doing fix and flip as an attorney just isn't realistic. But you probably could have gone the route of, you know, buying single family and, you know, hiring managers, hiring contractors, or, you know, even working through turnkey, you know, providers where you're buying, you know, single family in the Midwest where they basically handle everything. Uh, Why was it that you decided to go large commercial multifamily versus staying in that space that you had started in? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I like to add value. So even when I was doing single family stuff, you know, you're looking for value add. And that usually that, that typically is going to include some construction and dealing with different vendors, constru- contractors and engineers and architects, not so much, but more so the contractors. Right. And, and then you, you end up getting property managers to take care of your property as well. When you, when you up, upgrade to commercial properties, you don't have to deal with those low level contractors, those guys that will screw you over for $2,000, right? Mm-hmm. Because the people in commercial are worried about their reputation. They want to get the next job. They want to scale their business because they're they're legitimate business folks compared to the the contractor that you're trying to do a, a you know you buy a fifty thousand dollar house in Cleveland and then you're trying to flip it for one hundred fifty thousand bucks and you know you put fifty thousand dollar rehab in it. You know that those contractors that do those deals, they're a pain in the ass to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And when you're trying to do that from two thousand miles away, like I did because I live in San Diego and I was fixing and flipping in Charlotte and Cleveland, it's ridiculously hard to try to manage what they're doing when they'll screw you over for a couple thousand bucks. So, you know, not just that. So the the vendor quality is a big thing. And the other thing is just scaling, right? I think a lot of people that get into single family, you know, they start building a a portfolio and they get to a certain point where they're just like, man, this is just a lot of work for a couple hundred dollars net that you get per door. Um, And there's got to be a better way. And that's usually more doors under one roof. 
Um, yeah. So you end up scaling up to multifamily and, and, you know, not that you can't use other people's money for a single family because people do it all the time. They partner and go deal to deal, but man, it's a, it's a lot easier to scale, especially using other people's money in commercial real estate. Yeah. Yeah. So moving forward, what, what does this look like for you? You got your hands in a handful of things, but you know, what, what do you see on the horizon for your business moving forward in the next maybe couple of years? Yeah, just continue to strategically partner with with choice operators that I like working with, partnering with them on their deals. Um, you know, bringing my investors to their deals. You know that that's part of the the service of of you know being someone like myself that has a a pool of investors is to to vet those sponsors that are going to because I'm not usually that sponsor that's boots on the ground. I'm partnering with people that are. So part of my job is to make sure that those operators, you know, they have the track record of success, they have the experience, and that I know them on a personal level where I trust them. And to that extent, I trust them with my investors' money. Yeah, love it. Well, uh, I've got, I wanna start winding down here. I've got a few final questions for you. The first is, what's the biggest challenge you're facing right now in your business that we could all learn from? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's scale. I think trying to scale, trying to delegate, trying to figure out when to bring more people on. You know, I, I I'm working crazy hours right now, right? But it, it's not terrible. It's not like uh, when I'm billing hours at a firm because when you're doing that, you're working for somebody else, and you know, if you work 12, 14 hour days, you are just completely miserable. When you're doing it for yourself, it's a little bit different. It makes you feel alive to a certain extent. But I've um, got to figure out a better way to to scale, and and that usually that usually means bringing on more people. So I'm working on that right now. Yeah, love it. What's something that you're just absolutely crushing right now in your business that we could all learn from? I think it's partnerships. Uh, I'm really good at networking and and figuring out, uh, getting getting close to people. So figuring out what their business is and and what they need. So, you know, I just went to IIREC in in LA. It's Hunter Thompson's uh, networking uh, or his, his, his event and just had a really good time there. So networking and, and partnering with different folks. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of opportunities right now out there. So I'm trying to figure out which ones are the best ones, um, for my investors and, and my partners. Yeah. Love it. Well, look, Seth, I've enjoyed having you on the show. I've enjoyed hearing about your story and progress into the space, how you've been able to manage you know, the legal world, as well as getting in, involved in larger commercial multifamily deals and uh, how you've taken part in that and some of the insights that you had as far as you know, high-level things that passive investors should be looking for in the operating agreement, which, as you alluded to, probably the most important document for you to be looking at when you're vetting a deal as it's going to dictate how that agreement between you and the general partners sort of plays out. Um, and uh, just appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey with us. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and learn more about what, what you have going on in the future? Sure. I go uh, check out the podcast, go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com. That's probably the best way because all the episodes, all the content, the blog, um, all that sort of stuff is housed at that website. So that's the best place to get started. Awesome. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, if you're listening right now, go down to the show notes, click on that link to the PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and uh, connect with uh, Seth, listen to his podcast, listen to the content that he produces, a lot of good stuff. Again, Seth, thank you for coming on. Thanks for sharing your journey with us. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. David, appreciate it, man. Talk soon. Hey, before you go, if you and I haven't connected yet, please head on over to canovocapital.com. 
you can join our investor network or download our free Passive Investor's Guide to Multifamily Syndications. Either way, I'd love to connect with you personally. Also, I just want to thank you for listening to the show and providing feedback and reviews. If you haven't already, please, please, please take a second and leave us a rating and written review. This helps us to be found by new listeners and helps us attract great guests in the future. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great day.